0: Welcome back to Stories from the Ashes where we pontificate on good books and the stories that define and refine us. I'm Amber and I'm here with Amanda and then also John who is an author and we are really excited about his new book. John, would you like to introduce yourself and sure. tell us a little bit about yourself including three books that have been influential in your life? Sure.
1: Well, I'm really pleased to be here today. It's a privilege. My name is John Summer. Um I am, in a way, a first-time author, but I also, what I do for my day job is I'm a missionary in West Africa, where I've been with my family now for 20 years. Uh, So books that have influenced me, my wife and I were talking about this, and this is a really, um, really interesting thing. I'll tell you, weirdly enough, the very first book that ever influenced me, I can't even remember its name. Strangely yeah. enough. Being a dyslexic, something we'll probably talk about a little bit later, I struggled with reading. Um, I am definitely a literature convert. I was not from a big reading family and I struggled to read. And I remember the first book that ever really influenced me was the first book I ever read to understand. I was reading so slowly by the time I was 10 or 11 years of age. Most of the time I'd start in a... A sentence, and by the time I get to the end of the sentence, I I couldn't remember what the whole thing was talking about,
2: Mm -hmm. and so I
1: don't really remember. It was one of those little '80s chapters, novel things, you know, story. uh, Dating myself, it was probably about this spy kid, and it had he had these little revolving things on his high top tennis shoes, you know, that would fly around. (laughs) But I remember it because it was the first book I read that came alive because I could read enough and imagine it in my mind. So that would be the first one. And then second, not long after that. So I go from basically barely being able to read and limping along at 10, that by about 12, I was in a public school. We had an accelerated reading program where they would encourage us to read and we get like points and stuff. And I had friends reading a fantasy novel series called The Wheel of Time. Okay. These books are like, a thousand pages each. And so I go from like barely reading to, you know, two years later, you know, these books were super popular and I began to read them. And I would say Wheel of Time simply for the fact um, I was not from a family that was really ever big in fantasy or anything like that, but I was reading it. And I started to see just so many parallels of just even my Christian faith, though it had nothing to do with that. It's not a Christian book in any mm-hmm. way. But I remember specifically, I think it might have been book three or book four. Uh, I don't encourage this, but I actually stayed home from school, fake six. And I can <laughs> read my book. My mom was very loving, probably a little too loving. And I stayed home one day because it was the middle of this book. And there's this character, uh, Matt Cottram, I believe was his name, and he had all these memories in his head to remember the past. And he's remembering this fight scene about his ancestors in this Two Rivers and how they're fighting all these trolls and all these different things. And basically, like the last battle, they all run over this bridge and burn it behind them to save their families Mm -hmm. alive. And I remember I was so moved by the patriotism and the sacrifice in that book. Mm -hmm. I literally jumped up out of my bed shouting. Of course, my mom (laughs) hurt me. I realized I wasn't very sick (laughs) and I had to go to school the next day. But it was the first book I would say that so I remember just how it captured my imagination. And I would think holy imagination and my empathy in a way that I've never seen before.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: to fast forward, I'd say book number three would have to be a book I read as an adult. So I went through what I call the university doldrums, you know, mm-hmm. you get all this reading that's absolutely life sucking. You know, my wife was a just a voracious reader, never hardly read in college, but I was not yet really a reader. I was a consumer of book entertainment.
2: Mm-hmm. So I wasn't
1: really a reader yet. And we went off to the mission field. Uh, We had not been there very long. We basically were in a really small local apartment. We had 12 boxes. We were going through the middle of culture shock. We had not much to connect to. Uh, Christmas was all the trappings of Christmas that I would have thought were so integral. You know, that's what Christmas was. No cold. It's like 100 degrees out. Mm -hmm. There's no snow, no Christmas tree. There's no nothing. And we were walking around town trying to figure out some things for Christmas, and we came across this small little bookstore. We only have two in our whole city. And I came to a little Christian bookstore, and they happened to have a used copy of a Christmas Carol. And we sat down and we just, I mean, we eked it out. It's not a very long book. Well yep. we spent two weeks just reading. And it touched me in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But it really was the spark that rekindled all reading for me and from there we even bought a little copy of um trying to remember what it was it wasn't gulliver's travels um robinson crusoe that's what it was and so from there we just began to read again and so that was kind of my the resurrection Or even I shouldn't say that because I don't know if I was ever a reader, but I would definitely say the recreation of books in my life. And Mm -hmm. we just began to read more and more and more. And it's just grown into this beautiful thing we never expected. So I would say those are probably my three books off the top of my head.
2: You use the term reader versus book consumer. How would you differentiate those?
1: Okay, so anything can be entertainment. Um, You know, a guy will, you know, play basketball for pickup Cause he just wants to, you know, play mm-hmm. basketball, but he's not necessarily a basketball player. It's not something that maybe he puts in his life or he might just play it on, you know, Nintendo, whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess I look at it. Um, there's all kinds of entertainment. So there are some of us that we just, we read and what we pick to read is simply for distraction. And that's not, Hey, there's lots of kind of distraction. I'm not mm-hmm. knocking choose a book. And we are all have times where we just need to um, to rest. And I think yeah. reading a book is wonderful. I would say um, being a reader is something a little more intentional. Because mm-hmm. I know there are people out there who are voracious readers, but in the end, all they really read is basically for uh, their form of entertainment. So mm-hmm. I would say this is something maybe a reader is someone who has train themselves in the habit of intentional reading, at times picks up books that even aren't necessarily their first uh, choice of genre or preference. Um, I'm expanding in that. I never used to be a nonfiction reader. I love stories, and that's something that I'm growing in more. I would say, in I guess my opinion, that would probably be the distinction between a, a reader and just a casual reader.
0: In your expansion into nonfiction, have you found yourself doing more just like theology books or specific events in history or biographies? What form of nonfiction are you doing? So that's a
1: really good question. Um, actually, I love um, – we le- read a lot of biographies. So each one of my mm-hmm. kids are named after different missionaries that have influenced us. And that really bolstered us a lot of times when we were on the mission field just to kind of walk in the path with other godly people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Besides that, um, actually, uh, Teddy Roosevelt has really become a man that I've really been reading a lot lately. My wife gave me a bunch of his books. There's so many interesting, weirdly enough, um, science and nature books that are being uh, put out right now in a very living way. Um, So that's been really exciting. My wife's reading one about the night sky right now. We've read some about the national parks. There's a a company in England that uh, uh, reprinted some beautiful books that are all about different people's nature essays from John Muir and all these different ones like that, which have been really neat. So as for theology, I I don't know if I should say this as a missionary. I don't really read
0: a lot of theology. <laughs> um, I was just wondering like, if that was, if that was no, the, that would be the natural thing. I think sure, knowing that you're actually, a missionary, people would be like, oh, he's reading nonfiction. He's reading theology. But actually, those other things
1: are really great. Weirdly enough, no. I've read a whole lot of things on anthropology, a whole lot of things on missiology. As for theology, I have, um, I have a long-term study that started about four years ago where I'm trying to study what was how did Christ teach? How was he a master storyteller? That has let me delve into a lot of things. I've read some of the church fathers and different things to see their ideas on different ways of how we communicate. And I love to read. I read A.W. Tozier. I read a lot of things from uh, C.S. Lewis. And at times I'll read those. But when it comes strictly to theology, I have read them. I've studied them. But I tend to generally like to read other things.
0: Yeah, I consider you having opened the book to Tozer just now. Um, all of my cats are named after him. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so our our male cat is Tozer, yeah. and then our female yeah. cat is Ada, who was his wife, and Ada's name is actually awesome. Ada Cecilia, so their yes. baby cat is named yes. Cecilia, and we yes. call her Cece. So, um, yes. I, I really enjoy Tozer.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny people call A.W. Tozer this Christian mystic, but I don't really like that term. I don't think he would have either. I think he was a man who just realized that God was in everything. And so Mm -hmm. he didn't Mm -hmm. have the same formal education a lot of people. And I so respect him because he's the kind of man who didn't think of the world in a dichotomy. And so Mm -hmm. like, I remember when he went to read uh, Shakespeare, he said he prayed before he read Shakespeare because he felt like God, the Holy Spirit was the great teacher. And so he could even teach him Shakespeare. And he just exposed his life to those things. People like him, I find like even... I'll read now. I had a friend in college give me a little copy of Oswald Chambers, and he gave it, had it all highlighted. And I'm not gonna lie, 20 years ago, I read it. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> Where I find now, as I'm growing. I read his things and I find so much more there. So yeah. um, I'm sure maybe maybe I'll grow up and grow into some of those books that I'm not <laughs> into yet. I, so. I
0: think Tozer helped me a lot in being able to see the literary aspects of the Bible in a yes. way that I hadn't before. I'm pretty sure it's in his book. I call it Heresy, which I started reading just because it felt like mm. clickbait title. And I really liked that. But <laughs> I really love it because he's talking about Ezekiel. and. When he's talking about Ezekiel's vision, where there's the wheel within the wheel, he talks yeah. about how, like that entire chapter, is just how much the word "like" is used oh, because interesting. because Tozer has no frame of ref, or because Ezekiel has no frame of reference for what he's yes. seeing, and the people he's telling it to would have no frame of reference for what he's seen. So he is constantly just like, it was like this. And and I just thought that was really good for like studying metaphor and simile. And so I I really appreciate it when authors talk about that.
1: Have you ever read the book called Redeeming Imagination? I have not. I have in, in a theological way, I guess, in some ways, gone through my own journey of discovery along those lines. Uh, that's an amazing book that talks about Ezekiel too. It's it's an actual dual author book, Redeeming Imagination is. And that goes along with a few other books that have run like that. I, as I said, I grew up in a very conservative group where um they were good intentioned people at times, but who were very um nervous. About the power of imagination and uh, possibly having defiled imaginations, which is a is a good thing to be weary of, but maybe not embracing the positive role of what imagination right. is. And as I've come through this, I've been able to read different people, and it's helped to expand in my mind. Okay, what is the actual? role well, and how much does God he I mean so abundantly speak about imagination in his word and yeah. its role in our life as a Christian and as servants of the Lord so
0: So you you said that you're doing that study on how Jesus used storytelling yeah. and was the storyteller yeah. and that actually was one of the questions that I had for you was wondering how as a storyteller yourself who's written a book and spins tales for your kids how you've seen your storytelling Gifts influence you as a missionary oh. in being able to connect with a completely different people group and nationality than yourself.
1: I would say probably one of the things that's changed my life the most in the last four years, um, not counting the last 20 years of being in a mission field is just coming to see Christ as the master teacher and storyteller.
0: Mm-hmm. What does
1: that look like? He is my supposed to be my master. He's supposed to be my, uh, I'm supposed to use him as a mentor. But really coming from a very Western uh, cranial society where we have equated facts and mental uh, ability to remember Mm -hmm. with understanding, or even maybe at times, um, and uh, to quote Charlotte Mason, she said, no, fact should be removed from its informing idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And so doctrine has its place. As does catechisms, but in reality, a catechism helps me no more to live than a skeleton on a wall hanging there helps me to walk. Now, it might be helpful to know that this is, you know, this is the, you know, the knee bones connected to the, the thigh bone, and thigh bones connected to the hip bone. That's great to know, mm-hmm. but it it doesn't live when it has no informing ideas around it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was very easy for me. Coming into a very a uh, Western church, a Western background, as beautiful as those things are, as much as they've added to the scope of Christian history, they're uh, they're not all complete. And so right. I come from a very you know, hey, come in, let me give you a lot of maybe arguments or a lot of um, thoughts to consider. And I yeah. come into a storying based society mm-hmm. where many people are illiterate. Where those functions of how we think, and it's not an argument, it's not a logical delineation. You know, I'm going to go point one, point two, point three, whatever, or here are my, you know, 15 different points on how to do this. It's very much more a story situation. Um, and we're speaking and speaking generally one main idea and through a story or through an idea, just working through it. And it has been very, very much a good experience for me. Um, I am of the belief that Jesus Christ was the perfect example and he bridges east and west. So Mm. in the east, if you've ever seen like a movie like Kung Fu Panda, you know, you have the old (laughs) turtle, you know, and he's giving these proverbs, you know, and, you know, Poe is kind of scratching his head like, what does that mean? You know, so in the east, we have these beautiful proverbs, like in Ghana, where we say monkeys play by sizes. But at times, it's left on the part of the listener to hear and to interpret what those mean. Whereas in the West, most of the work is done by the speaker, and he just tells the listener what to do, and all they have to do is obey. Where we see Christ, this beautiful mixing of the both, where he mm-hmm. comes through story. And what's so amazing about story is it gives you and informs you and guides you, but it doesn't do all the work for you. It, it's not baby food. It doesn't chew it all up for you. You're left to wonder and left to grow. And so you're not just obeying, you can sit and you can meditate on it and you can chew on it and it can grow into this beautiful thing. It's it's best, I best. I think the best way to describe it is I've discovered the power of the, of the tail of the seeds by the wayside. Um, yes, it's speaking about the gospel, but it's also just speaking about ideas that Mm -hmm. they're sown and Mm -hmm. seed is alive. Yeah. But the soil also has to act upon it. So I have to sow, but the Mm -hmm. soil also has to work upon it. And so what this has done for us in missions is it's given me an opportunity to reach on both sides of the world. So I'm into the African uh, point of view, but then drawing them also to a greater truth that truth is not just experiential. It's not whatever you extrapolate out of it. There is truth. And we need to know there's a divine truth that will guide us, but then also helping those people who can sometimes be a little cranial and never bring it into life, bring the living embodiment of truth through story. So that's yeah. a bit of what we've discovered. I could probably talk for a year <laughs> a day we don't have time for all of that. So
0: <laughs> no, that's, that's great. Thank you very much for sharing that. Do you want to go ahead and tell us some about your book and
2: sure. the storytelling that you have done there with Zao's Tales? Sure. And especially how the Eastern versus Western has uh, impacted your storytelling.
1: I would say I never really realized that I was kind of a storyteller along the line. That's something I just like to do. And so uh, Africa has kind of molded that. So Zao's Tales is an outgrowth of our family. And so we were there with the little kids and in the tropics and it's hot. And there'd be some days that we were out at the market all day long because we didn't have a grocery store with air conditioning and we'd be sitting in a taxi and the kids would be running out of stuff to do. And so dad mm-hmm. had to start telling stories. And basically at first we kind of ran out of the stories that we, I knew growing up. And so we started making up stories and that just became a part of our life. And so that grew out of that, just the need for it, and also just the opportunity to tell stories and to read with our kids. We have a wonderful chance to be with our kids more than a lot of people. The work that I do doesn't draw me away from the house eight hours a day, and so I would be around for meals and hear my wife read different stories to my kids. The stories I missed, you know, mm-hmm. as a dyslexic, mm-hmm. I missed a lot of. I, I wasn't yeah. from a big reading family. I think the biggest literature we ever read growing up was like Berenstain Bears. So you can mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of see. But the cool thing is I got that again. So I got this double, mm-hmm. you know, I guess double portion um, for me of those things. But then, so sales tales basically grew out of a need for a gift. We do something at Christmas. uh Consumerism isn't as available there, which is a huge blessing. But we do a lot of gifts for each other, and so about seven years ago, weirdly enough, uh, we were my wife and I were, we were gonna give each other presents, and I I was in charge of getting the present for my wife. So I talked to my girls, and they were a little younger, and a lot of times they make things. We said, well, they're like, all right, Dad, why don't we tell a story? So they're like, okay, we'll pick. I was like, you guys can pick the general ideas, and then I'll write it. So not knowing at all and any idea what I was getting myself into, <laughs> so we went to a, like a website with different artists where they have like illustrators. Where at times you can use or uh-huh. things, story, right? and I thought, oh, they're gonna pick you know like a bunch of pictures about rabbits or you know or something. <laughs> and they picked like fourteen random, totally random. <laughs> Cool pictures, you know, my wonderful kids. But you know, one thing is Mm -hmm. at times that limitation or even that stretching kind of forced my imagination to have to work harder. And Mm so I'm like, well, if this is a story um, for my wife, we put my kids in it. So at that time, uh, there's just Cariela and Lily, but McKay was a toddler. And I'm like, well, if I'm gonna have an adventure story, it's really hard to have a toddler everywhere. So we reinvented her as a fairy and she appears in a book which is really weird because she was only about a year and a half and one thing about it and this won't reveal too much from the story McKay is a fairy um, from a story and one of the quirky things about her is that unlike some fairies she glows different colors but she's kind of like a mood ring so (laughs) how her emotions are that determines the fire that's coming out of her now I don't know if this was just (laughs) prophetic or what (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. My wife and I joke about this on a a regular basis about how prophetic this was that my daughter, who is our real motor, would be. But basically, we just told the story. My wife is in it. And so it is very much an outgrowth. They're not word for word the same, but they are the uh, impressions of that. And so basically, it is a story about a family whose father travels and buys them a book And as they're reading it aloud, because they love to read aloud as a family, a villain comes out of the story. And then the rest of the story is about how are they going to get this villain back in the book and how the book and people they meet from it help them on their adventure. So that's the outgrowth is very much a part of our family. I remember when I wrote it, I wrote it in only about um, a month, month and a half. And it was one of those weird times. It was just a crash of creativity. And I offered it and I almost kind of started, maybe, maybe we could do something with this. But I was really nervous being a dyslexic. I Maybe my opinion's really wrong on books or something. But I really respected my wife's opinion. I gave it to her on Christmas Day. And I was so, I'm like, shes she going to look at this? and like, this is horrible. you know." She would say it nicer than that. But I was worried. <laughs> that was good. let put that away and never read it again. But she read it. And I'm like kind of sitting there. She's like, "Can I mean, John, this is a big book. Can you at least give me a few moments? You know, (laughs) she she read it and she's like, no, she's like, it's really good. I, what do you, she said, what do you think? She's like, well, I think you should publish it. So that started the process, um, just about, uh, seven years of trying to get it published. But in the end, it wasn't, it wasn't there yet. It was just a rough draft. And so the Lord began Mm -hmm. to work me and my writing skills, but then he just did miracles leading us to Bandersnatch books and just. Mm -hmm eating Carrie and having her. And then even my friend, John, who's the illustrator. I did not know him until about four or five years ago. I met him on a furlough and got randomly. I mean, there's nothing random with God.
0: Right. I didn't go to his
1: church unexpectedly and we just became the best friends. And yeah, uh, it's just been a, work, a, a really working miracle. I don't say that lightly or even cliche. Yeah. It really has been a miracle for our family. So...
0: Mm-hmm. So speaking of cliches, your book is full of them, <laughs> which I love because as a kid, like I loved cliches. I loved like random sayings and I I almost felt like your book was one nonstop soundbite. Like you could right. just commonplace the whole thing. And <laughs> if I was a kid getting into commonplace booking, this would be such an easy place to start. Because it's clear. It's clear this is a concise thought that is just this like nugget of truth and wisdom that you're going to want to chew over. Um, my daughter and I are reading another book right now that's very similar. That's just one one deep thought that you want to just chew on after another. And uh, what is it called? It's by Ethan Hawke, the author. And it's called like The Code of the Night or... Mm-hmm. The Knights Honors, or something. Give me two seconds and I'll pull up on Audible. Sorry, I'm
1: trying to write these down, so I'll Google them all. <laughs> and them.
0: It's called Rules for a Knight. And so it's epistolary. It's a father about to go into what he thinks might be his last battle, writing all these things back to his children that he wants them to know. So he's like telling life stories and things of that nature. But we were listening to it on the drive to her dance class. And there's this part that I'm like, oh, this is really good. This is important (laughs) stuff that like speaks to what she's going through in life right now. And I look in the backseat and she's on her phone. And I'm like, How do you expect to be listening to this? Like, I pause it. I'm like, we're not listening to this if you're on your phone. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'm taking notes. And I was like, Yay. And she was, she was like, commonplacing on her phone in her little notepad. So so I think that I think this is really good for that. But I I wanted to tell you when I, uh, so your friend Kelly, who is also a missionary serving in your community, she was the person who introduced me to your book and asked me if I wanted to read an advanced copy and at that time I I don't I have not read an advanced readers copy in arc for a very long time usually people give me a book that they want me to give feedback on and editorialize and so I got that book and then I reached out to you and I was like, I realize I might be making a big mistake. Like I'm taking tons of notes here. Do you want to hear from me or am I just supposed to like read this and then pitch it? And you very graciously were like, tell me what you have to say. But I, I want to tell you my first impression of the book. So I, I your- made it I made it about three pages in and I set it down for two months. I was in a very jaded place in my life, and I was like, This person is just writing fan fiction about charlotte mason families and there's no (laughs) way this is going to actually play out well it's just going to like i'm gonna feel so insulted at some point and Uh i just like it was so literally the experience that i know that i was like he has to be making fun of us you know (laughs) that's so funny I told Kelly I'd read it. I have yeah, to read yeah, it before the yeah, Kickstarter. Yeah, so I went back one. and I started reading it, and I was like, "No, like he respects us. He really likes everything that we're doing. I think I think he's actually read Charlotte Mason's work.
1: Funny <laughs> enough, if funny. I can share this with you, weirdly yeah. enough, in seven years when I wrote that, none of that actually. I knew the only thing I knew. From Charlotte Mason, and you'll see in the beginning that says a wise woman once said read living books. That was about Uh as much as I knew about Charlotte Mason at that point. That has yeah. fundamentally changed in seven years. My wife was first like had really come to my daughter's also dyslexic and we had come into traditional schooling. She has her degree from university and teaching and we try the traditional route. And it just, I mean, it was falling apart for her. It was really not working that way. And she began to experiment with it. And I'll be honest, I thought she was a little bit crazy at first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I there was things about my wife that I loved, and she went to a great Christian mm-hmm. school and a great education. But I didn't realize it wasn't the Christian school; it was people who had who were lo- loving te- teaching and learning. Her mother loves books; she's a voracious reader, and we found those things, and it grew into it. So, actually, weirdly enough, I'll, some of those quotes, I guess, are gross mm-hmm. out of our family. So, like, there's a scene where uh, she's talking to Carrie and she's talking about fear. And us growing up, being here in the uh, mission field, there are times Mm -hmm. that we really do battle with fear and Mm -hmm. we have that are fearful. And we had to learn to give our children more than maxims, but to give them ideas that would- be something they could chew on. So at times when Carrie, you know, if we would have a situation maybe in the community that was a fearful situation at night, okay, what mm-hmm. are you going to think about? So she's in the scene where she says, well, you know, what do you do when you're afraid? Think mm-hmm. truth. For the truth has nothing to be afraid of. Those yeah. are little truths that God had gave us and they found their mm-hmm. way into the book. So I'm glad that it, it came across as yeah. non-mocking. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, I, I want to read a, a short paragraph here that sure. that I felt really was very much Charlotte Masony. Okay. It says, come here, Patty. So Patty's your wife, who's also mm-hmm. the mom in this book. Come here. Patty bent down to help her youngest daughter. Kneeling, she noticed the unspoken concern in Lily's big brown eyes. She squatted there for a few moments and just looked at her. Their eyes met. Lily's face was a mask of calm, but Patty could tell that the emotions hidden inside were running like a herd of wild horses. She had learned over the past few years, how important it was to pay attention to her children. They were people after all. That's a Charlotte Mason concept right there. Children are born people. And I read that and like, I highlighted that. And then this is really funny. So (laughs) I sent a copy of, of your book to Amanda to read in preparation for today. Mm -hmm. I accidentally sent her my highlighted copy. So today when I'm like, Amanda, I can't find my highlighted copy. Like I mm-hmm. had stuff I wanted to, you know, talk about today and I'm driving myself crazy. She's like, I think I read your highlighted copy. And like, so she read my hot pink <laughs> highlighted copy of this book. And I was yeah. like, Did you think the author was just highlighting his best notes? And she's yeah. like, I don't I know. Did. Sometimes
2: <laughs> I thought I thought you were just like giving us the great the great <laughs> pieces. I had just to read like,
1: the highlights. You don't need the others. Here's
2: my you. best word. Here's my best word right here. <laughs> here. Uh, this is what I'm really proud of. Yeah. <laughs> that was really funny.
0: But yeah, so this was one of my highlighted things. They were people after all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I well,
2: totally got the. I didn't get the impression that you were making fun of. I, I mean, I know Amber does not things now, but I did not get the impression they were think- making fun of Charlotte Mason. I thought, oh, he's just a Charlotte Mason dad. I'm so yeah. excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I didn't think he was making
0: fun of it in what I read in the first two pages. Sure. I was mm-hmm. concerned. I was like, I've never read anything that reflected a homeschool family like this, like the literary-based home educators. I hadn't seen that represented in works. And so I think you just you get a little nervous, right? Like, is the representation going to be correct? Is it going to be a little sarcastic? Is this dad yeah fully on board or does he think his wife's a little kooky so it's just that that nervousness going into it but i appreciate you sharing that
1: so it's been interesting that has been one of those things you know as you put something out into the world Mm -hmm. um everybody comes at it from a different angle so you're not quite sure how you're going to receive it i've had a few people just tell me i remember i had one lady who pre-read it and she said i'm still thinking on it." I still don't know all her thoughts yet. But I mean, in, in the end, every even time I stand up to speak to a group of people, you know, yeah. one of the things I guess Christ has taught me why ideas are so much more important than propaganda. See, mm-hmm. propaganda always has an agenda, it always has. But the hard thing with that is you never know the direction someone is coming from. So Mm -hmm. your objective might actually push them away more than it actually draws you to your point of view. But when you're just in truth and when we're in a journey together, uh, the wonderful thing about how truth works, and especially a story works, it meets everyone, no matter Mm -hmm. where they're at. And if it is a true story, it draws them closer. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the cool thing, I, I I'm just about how it works and how story works. Even in some ways, it meets I mean, every child. When you read out mm-hmm. loud to your kids, everyone's going to take from it what they're ready to get. And yeah. if it's a wonderful thing about a beautiful living story is you can just keep coming back for more. And in the end, that's what we hope say those Tales is something that people will feel like they want to come back for more and then add it to their life.
2: Absolutely. I really like that. I had a question about you've mentioned being dyslexic and you mentioned that you had these limiting beliefs about your ability as an author and whether your book would be well received because of that. How has that influenced your life and how have you overcome that? And sure. do you see these these negative beliefs about yourself coming back or has has becoming an author allayed some of them?
1: Um that's really interesting. So yeah, I I was you know, dyslexic when no one was dyslexic. Um, and so I was raised um, for the first few years of my life, first two years of school in Indiana, northern Indiana. And we were in a public school, old school public school. Um, and my mom began to wonder if I had difficulties when it came to reading I'm a very, there's some amazing books that we've read since because my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter are both also dyslexic. The difference of being a word-based thinker, which is my wife 100%, and being a very dominant picture thinker like myself. Um, so I made it a challenge. Plus I was a hyper kid. So a distraction was definitely something. But my principle Um, When my mom wanted to talk, she wanted to go get me tested for dyslexia. He just looked at her and said, your son is stupid and lazy, and that's why he can't read. And so that was something that, you know, he was very adamant about. But then God, in his mercy, moved us all the way up to Michigan, which is kind of the setting of Zayo's Tales. But in reality, he moved me up there because God was working in our life. And he sent us to a school that had a really good... Special ed program, and I didn't have to be mainstreamed in English. I got to be on the side and was just patient. I would say the biggest thing that dyslexia did for me, my mom labored, I mean, endlessly to assure me that I was smart, you know, and I wasn't dumb. I mean, she talked about it all the time. My mom is quite a cheerleader, sometimes so much so that I didn't always listen to her, but she was a great mom. Um, but in the end, I would say the biggest thing um, was I love story, but I didn't think stories were for me. Hmm. One of the greatest things my mom did for me, weirdly enough, was way back when there was no, you know, audio books, it wasn't audible. They had this initiative for the blind and my parents weren't big mm-hmm. readers, but they had this initiative for the blind. And that was back when they were cassette tapes, you know? Yeah. So, yep. I mean, you had these little green cassette tapes and she would allow Mishu worked it all out, even though I wasn't blind. That I got these cassettes for the blind, and they were, you know, wanted it. They didn't know all the books in there, so they're like, You only have to listen to classics. But I remember I got uh, Gulliver's Travels, and I got to listen to these books and the mm-hmm. Tale of Two Cities. And I those influenced me in, in a way that I would have never had exposure to. And in some ways, probably to use the Charlotte Mason expression, it probably saved me from a whole lot of twaddle. Cause if <laughs> I had been a consumer, <laughs> I would have just read probably everything that uh-huh. I could. And I was limited to some very uh specific books. But I would say definitely as a as a writer, it has been odd. My wife is a voracious reader and I think one of the smartest women that I know. And so it really mattered what she thought about my book uh, that mm-hmm. helped that she liked it. I, I respect her opinion greatly, but the gift I feel like, and this is something to encourage all kids out there who are dyslexic. I think until our modern visual world, all picture thinkers still had to function in a word-based society. So you have mm-hmm. these great men in the past, possibly, I don't know if Mark Twain, Twain was dyslexic, but I like to imagine that he was. <laughs> i think maybe charles dickens yeah i don't know i just like to imagine that they they're so good with painting with words mm-hmm. not just brushes and what i feel like happens sometimes in our modern world is those who generally are dyslexic because reading is hard they go to the more visual which can be wonderful and a great gift but sometimes they miss out on the word side of and so yeah. like I talk with my friend John, our my illustrator friend, he is dyslexic too, he's an amazing man, a pastor. But I feel like what the Lord has allowed me to do is paint with words. So weirdly enough, when I write, I don't write like my wife. She thinks it's all the words on the pages. I'm so dyslexic that when I'm writing a scene, I cannot have it be my final copy. I see it, I visualize it. It's almost like a movie in my head. I smell it and I taste it and I encompass that scene. And then I have to kind of pull away enough to be able to write the words on the pages. Now, my B's and D's and my things flip around quite a bit while I'm doing it. It helps me to type on my computer because my dyslexia is uh, rearranged by a word and it helps to retype those things. But for me, I wouldn't change it for the world. Because I wouldn't be the man I am. I wouldn't see things the way I do. And so I'm so glad that God let me be dyslexic. But then he just allowed me to learn the tools to incorporate it and not be encumbered by it.
0: I definitely see that in my daughter's life where she has consumed, like when she, before she could really start reading about eight and a half, she consumed hours and hours and hours and hours of audiobooks. the month before she... It clicked for her in reading mm-hmm. she did 40 hours of edith nesbitt like she just plowed <laughs> awesome. through it you know but that's some yep. high level languaging oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. i really like the the reader that we listened to on audible she has a remarkable cadence that yeah. you either love or hate and at first i was like what is this and then after that <laughs> i was like keep it coming like i i'm completely down for this but she's an author. Yeah. My daughter's 15, awesome. and she's halfway through awesome. the second book in the series awesome. that she's writing. And I cry when I read what she's writing because her storytelling is so beautiful. And like you said, how it's easier to type it. She writes it all on her phone yeah. because she's an atrocious speller. She'd be the first person <laughs> to admit that. But her phone does autocorrect. And so she's able to just – it doesn't get in the way of her flow. She's able to just get it out, get her thoughts out quickly. And she just, she sits for hours a day on her phone, typing out her story.
1: I've had to learn to shut off my, um, my dyslexic artistic brain when I do editing and I have to do that Mm. in a different way. And I pull away and I'm trying to think more on word-based and the Lord's helped me do that. But one thing, if I can throw out just a note for all those who have children who are dyslexics, you know, it is easier because they're drawn to visual, give them words, give them books, Mm -hmm. because they have such a well to work with. So don't disenfranchise them from, and story helps so mm-hmm. much. With the great, let them have the things in moderation that are right and good in all those other genres, but let them have the words because I think they have a way of giving guess even, yeah. even if they go into audiovisual, even if they go into those, it will make it more rich because they will mm-hmm. pull from their own imaginations. And it's just, it's a, I believe it's a beautiful gift from the Lord for me, uh, not for everybody, but for me. And I thank the Lord, he's given me dyslexia.
0: I think it's remarkable how many dyslexics become authors, because I just I see it a lot when Mm -hmm. I'm studying authors that they they talk about their dyslexia. And I think Mm -hmm. that it it does it forces your brain to think a certain way. It is a (laughs) brain that's created to think a specific way. And then if you mesh those two things, then you get these beautiful, beautiful storytelling out of it so we've we've talked about how your book reflects your real life mm-hmm. in your family. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how much of the culture of West Africa has made yeah. it into your book or is going to make it into books that you plan to write <laughs> because yeah. this one this one's about Michigan, which yeah. is your home state basically where, where you spent most of your childhood and it's amanda's home state so amanda actually was reading through it and she thinks that you guys have a different definition for a word
2: <laughs> yes yes I, okay i grew up in michigan and i feel like fudgy means different things to us <laughs>
1: okay well are you allowed to tell me on radio what a fudgy means or is this <laughs>
2: <Yes. I> mean- <laughs> okay so let's go back a little bit i was reading this book and it was set in central lake michigan i'd never heard of that so i was trying yeah. to piece together pieces of where it would be because i grew yeah. up on the lower east side okay we have a lot of family on the west side and yeah. i went to school up in the upper peninsula oh
1: so you're so all a over all right
2: for a few years yes <laughs> so i was trying to i did narrow it down i was trying to narrow it down and i was yeah. like it must be somewhere near traverse city okay so i got pretty close
1: yeah,
2: yeah. but then when you're talking about Torch Lake, I it's like, "Oh yes, then it's New okay. Traverse City." But in the UP, we always thought that Fudgies were anyone south of the bridge, and I was yeah. like, "Wait, people in, people at Torch Lake are calling people Fudgies? They're Fudgies."
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I would say it's all a debate on what lateral, you know, what parallel are you? Are you above the 45th parallel? Whatever. Um, I know that youpers call everybody below in the Southern peninsula. If you're not from Michigan, we're going to go real deep here in Michigan theology really quick. So yes. everybody from the lower peninsula is below the bridge. So they're trolls. Um, yes. so then, uh, we, okay. So. I lived in a tourist area near Traverse City, about 45 minutes from there. And all the Southerners would come up to buy fudge or Mackinac Island fudge. Yep. And so we would call them fudgies because they were another name for tourist. So, yeah, that's kind of the, our joke where I came from. Weirdly enough, the story is a quasi-melding. Um, the town I'm from originally, Central Lake, is quite small. I mean, my public school, uh, you know, I graduated from had like 46 kids. So, I mean, real small mm-hmm. town. But what I kind of did is we live in Saginaw when we're back in the United States, and so basically mm-hmm. what we did is we melded a little bit of Saginaw with um Traverse City and Central Lake. It's kind of this melding of all those things, so it's not tech- it's technically in the book Center Lake, not Central Lake i right? but for that reason um then basically um yeah, Michigan's a lot in there, why though? I think maybe that's just the essence of my childhood. It was the first to come out. Some of those, so many of those things that just form in you. I had the chance to grow up in a Christian camp with almost 120 acres. So I was out in nature a lot and I didn't realize how much that influenced me. And it's just an outgrowth. Um, I remember growing up near Torch Lake and just all what it was like to be a Michigander. Now, not to be removed from Ghana, Lord willing, uh, I have at least in my mind three stories that might someday become uh, a series for Zeo's Tales. And so you will discover the family. We don't have a family name yet. I guess we could probably come up with one. Summer might be a little bit too close to home. But um, they have a second adventure. That uh, at this point is slated to be uh, totally happening in West Africa, which would give the oh. other side of our family culture. I've worked out most of the details and plot and things for that. Um, and so that might be coming in the future. Uh, that would be Zeo's tales retold. And then possibly a third one that might be set in England. So all different parts parts of our life that really influence us. So I'd say Michigan just because it's an essence of my childhood. And I think in the end, none of us are creators. We're just rearrangers. So I mm-hmm. was pulling out, I think, from what was just closest to home. And that's probably where that came from.
2: Well, it feels very much like Michigan. I was
1: yeah. reading. Really- <laughs> it's kind of supposed to be so.
2: You don't get a lot of
0: uh, fantasy and fiction set in the Midwest. So. No. No,
1: <laughs> but I do think Station, is it Station 11? I think that was technically set in eastern Michigan, western Michigan, I believe, from Holland huh. up to Traverse City. It's a, a post-apocalyptic book. But I warn you. It is a love or hate series. I've never met anyone who is in the middle. You either absolutely love it or absolutely hate it, but I won't tell you which side I'm on. So
0: So Amanda was wondering about the characters that are within the book. So you yep. mentioned that the villain comes out of the book and people probably assume McKay also does as a fairy, but we're seeing different characters come out as they read them out as they need them, and then they're able to return back to their stories. So those characters, some of them are are real characters, some of them are based in mythology. How many of those are characters people might recognize from somewhere else versus how many are strictly from your imagination?
1: Well, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts? I'll throw back that question on you. Do you have any opinions (laughs) as to my sources of creativity? I'd be curious.
2: So I was looking into the Native American character, yeah. Assume, how do you say her name?
1: Assume Say.
2: Okay. And I Googled it because I was curious. And yeah. all I came up with was Assassin's Creed, <laughs> a video oh, game really? character. And it was like, I was like, no, She's there's like, no I seriously way. doubt that. <laughs> I seriously doubt. But so did, it was do- interesting. Because it was a Native American character yeah. and it had huh. something to do with like lost people. And I was like, huh. so is this really from mythology? And it's interesting. Just like something. That interesting. Is, I don't know. I was I was very confused because I was certainly. So did you
1: Google that specific name? That's really interesting. Yes,
2: I Googled okay. that specific name.
1: Well, it is a, a Blackfoot uh, Cherokee name. Um, all the names in, in our book are from um, different. Uh, people groups and they have meaning. So when I write and I write a character, I like to know the traditional meaning of a name. So Bern is a Celtic name and it has a, a reason. Athena was probably the only one not. That was a name that just came. Uh, she, it seemed like, um, so, so I'll say my wife just wrote me a note is Blackfoot. She's not Cherokee, but she's Blackfoot. Yeah. But anyway, uh, like Athena, that was kind of almost a pull a little bit off of some Greek concepts of I I thought of a woman who is very beautiful, but at the same time, her outside and her inside don't match. She she is definitely uh, and I know her backstory. And um, maybe we can talk about that a a little later. But really, believe it or not, most of it is just a outgrowth of our imagination. So this pictures we uh, chose had different elements and then one was a um, Indian lady and uh, one was a, a native American woman. And then, uh, then there were different uh, Chinese things. So I just took kind of a general exposure to mythology and then tried to bring it into it and try to develop those things and pick out names that I thought had meanings in them. Weirdly enough, though, it has grown in the seven years of this process of us being more involved in mythology. And so now we read more of those things. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes I wonder, hmm, was this well-informed? Was this not informed?
0: <laughs> I really but, liked the tree. The tree oh, reminded awesome. me of the Ents. Yeah. And just the slower talking and the, the wisdom.
1: That particular one, the story itself has a nod to um, Wheel of Time, the character in it, his name's a little bit that way. But in that particular place, in that part, part, I won't give away the details for the plot, but... One of the things I learned about true stories is that they need to convey what is in reality. So if you're Mm -hmm. if a child is in an adventure and you have a nine-year-old and they're going and beating up adults, you know, and they don't have superpowers, that's (laughs) kind of awkward. And most kids don't go into life without some kind of mentor or help. You always Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Frodo, you know, he has Gandalf. Think of all the great Mm -hmm. stories. You'll have someone there. And then the particular situation. I would say the greatest inspiration, weirdly enough, for the the tree sprite would be maybe my grandmother. They just needed a sage wisdom and I just wanted someone who exuded wisdom and when I think of trees and how old they are, just what would a old, wise woman who sat for two hundred years and watched be like and who would also I'm
0: talking about the watching. I'm gonna read a quote from her real quick. Okay. And so I, I really liked this. It says, remember this, we, the trees grow slowly and we live long years, but we do not sit idle. As the seasons pass, we watch the children of the woods and the children of men. My children, I tell you now what I have observed by watching evil men, their wickedness batters them like the cold of approaching winter. It withers their souls. Until like an autumn leaf, the winds of their fears pluck them and carry them away. This is why they are more often running from something than they are going somewhere. I was just like, oh. Well, I say that's, that's the great. gift
1: of storytelling. I mean, I'll be honest. There's times I sit down and I read my book and I'm like, wow, did I write that? <laughs> <And> <laughs> you're kind of like, wow, oh, that's a thought to think about. So yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's been a blessing and I'm excited like going forward as we've, okay, so we have one of the things we've done with the kick, uh, Kickstarter is we have like a, a book that's an accompanying book. It's off to the printers. i really excited. John, Einer, I can, I wish I could show you the cover. It is so beautiful. He's done this yeah. graphic design. We have a specialty drop cap that John designed for a book. He made another one for that fairy tale. And so we have three new fairy tales. And they're supposed to be like books or stories out of Zeo's tales, the original Mm -hmm. book, though it doesn't exist. And so Mm -hmm. one is an African tale. Uh, Really. That one was just so fun. And I had a bunch of my friends and Ghana read it. And they all felt it was very authentic and very close to home. Um, It's kind of a, a blend of Brer Rabbit meets a Nancy. if you know those culturally, both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, they come out in that. And then we have a Scottish tale, and that one is about a uh, seventh son of a seventh son, and his interaction with a fairy named Puck, and a lesson. Oh, well, not so much as. A uh, lesson per se, something he learns from that experience. And then the last one is actually a story I wrote for my kids specifically as a Christmas present. And it's the mice before Christmas. And it's set in the time of about the 1900s and uh, 1880s to 1920s in England and a family of mice and their experience on a Christmas. And so, um, In a way, I'm excited because if we go forward, that's something we want to do. It's called the blue, uh, the blue. What's, I'm trying to remember the name. Can you remember it beautiful? I believe it's the blue book of tales. So kind of like taking a nod to the blue fairy books. Kind of, and so our desire is uh, maybe as we go forward, if we publish other books, to have a different one. And so whatever the color happens to be of the book, that will correspond. Maybe a red book of tales, a green book of tales, and so on. Um, And having a chance to write more uh, fairy tales in different genres. So, Lord Lord willing, that will be something I'll get to expand in my opportunities
0: with. That's exciting. My my ears are kind of full. I don't think I heard you correctly. The first book that you're writing is about Brer Rabbit meets what? So it's
1: a it's like a melding. Have you ever read the Brer Rabbit stories? Okay, I, I didn't that, hear what
0: you said after that though. But Brer the Rabbit, the
1: Anansi, Anansi tales. That is a very traditional West. <laughs> I African
0: heard Nazi. Tale. <laughs> <Like> Brer Rabbit, <laughs> say Nazi, yes. and I'm like, mm, if I heard that wrong. Maybe somebody else did too. So just thought I'd clear that one up. You okay, know, I believe yeah. in broad <laughs>
1: categories of creativity, but that might be a little bit even beyond me. <laughs>
0: Um, Not sure how that was
1: gonna work. They're little rabbits that jump around, saying Heil Hitler" okay. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Are we allowed to say that on internet anymore? No, I don't know. We'll just edit that one out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's Anansi tales, and those are okay. very traditional West African tales. And just really excited about it. That one was really fun to write, uh, and just the kids. Really, and I, I love it because I get to write them and then read them to my kids, and they yeah. Like, They're like, so is it good?
0: Test audience.
1: (laughs) They're my first audience. So So it's been really enjoyable.
0: Yeah, that sounds like it would be enjoyable. Thank you for clarifying that for me.
2: Um, so, so I guess you have so- an
0: idea
1: going for it if you want to write <laughs> stories about Nazi rabbits.
2: <laughs> it's a whole new genre. <laughs> I carved that one out. <laughs> rabbits.
1: Yeah. Oh
0: man. Oh, man. So I just, I have a quick homeschooling question for sure. you guys with the literature-based education. So you are back in the States for about a year right nice. now, right? To yes. get your yep. oldest settled in college and then you'll go back. So how... How is it for your family with going back and forth for long periods of time on furloughs and whatnot with being able to keep your rhythms and keep your routines? That's that's
1: a very good question. Um, In reality, Charlotte Mason in that way has been quite a boom to us Mm -hmm. as a family. If we were more in a structured uh, classroom setting where, you know, it's very rigid,
2: some Mm -hmm. of that would
1: be very, very difficult. One of the things we're we kind of our hashtag for this year where we're back is gypsies for Jesus. That's what we put on all our Instagram things, and we travel a lot. So sometimes that denotes twelve hours in a car, and you know we've done the traditional school uh, way that way, and if that's the way God leads people, but for us it's so much more of a joy. Uh, doing the Charlotte Mason method while we're traveling, because mm-hmm. you know we were able to go as a family for three weeks throughout the whole Southwest, and we went through so many states and the national parks. And so we can incorporate all that. And God just had it work out. My kids were studying geology at that point, and they were just, I mean, oh, this is a view, beaut- and oh, that's a canyon, and they're living it all out, which has been really amazing. And it's a whole lot easier to have the approach of living books and our kids having those independent studies, it is a change. We've actually, coming between countries, have realized the power of atmosphere, how mm-hmm. important that is in our home. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are not as um, averse in Charlotte Mason, it's just really atmosphere is more than a scented candle. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, a Yankee candle that you come in and you just manufacture a scent. Mm -hmm. Really, uh, atmosphere is the smell of life. It's what you're around. I've lived in a lot of places with interesting smells of life, okay? (laughs) And uh, in the end, um, it gives my kids the gift of comparison. So they get this beautiful thing of growing up in Africa. They get this beautiful thing of growing up in America. And Mm -hmm. we try to take the best of both. So when I was in Bible college, the man who taught us, who is the president of our college used to say, when you eat books, it's like eating fish. You eat the meat and you spit out the bones. And Mm -hmm. I feel that way. There's no perfect culture in the world. We're all broken, but we also Mm -hmm. all have been given light. And so what's Mm -hmm. cool for my kids is they get to see the beautiful sides of African culture that are more Christ-like and then the ways that we're bent by our sinfulness and our depravity. But then they come to America and they get to see these beautiful things that are redeeming and beautiful, but then they get to see the broken things Mm -hmm. that are not always beautiful, that in fact are very sad but it kind of maybe in some ways gives them a little bit more holistic view of the greatness of Mm -hmm. God and the beauty of God. And that's a gift I would never give up. So it's a challenge, you know, we come back and it's like, okay, we've all got like brain, uh, you know, plain brain for a week Mm -hmm. and we can't think straight. And we work like we worked out that we had our second term and our third term during that time and had a time to catch up, but then just working hard. One of the biggest things we've had to do instead of, my wife hit upon that really helped her. Instead of having a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday schedule, she had day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. So yeah. if something happened and there came a day in between. She would just know where she was mm-hmm. in the rotation. But um, as Charlotte Mason says, habits are hard, but they make life easy.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that has just been a lifesaver for us as we jump between worlds. Yeah. having... The books, I mean, reading as a family around lunch, having different things. One thing my wife likes to do with our girls is after school, she has a separate little tea time with each one of the girls, and she reads some books to them. They read different, at different ages and different levels. Um, we just are finishing Harry Potter with my oldest. We save that for their 11th and 12th grade years. She's so excited. She can't wait to find out what happens at the end of the series. We always read um, Narnia to our 10-year-old, so Lily's in the very last book, The Last Battle right now. So that's a special time, and that's something that's joined us together, too,
2: when yeah. everything
1: else is in chaos. Okay, afternoon tea time with mom, and she reads, I get to sit in a lot, which is really cool. I'm mm-hmm. glad to, get to participate in that. So those are just some things that have helped us in the transition.
0: Yeah, I I believe it's very powerful for families to have common books in their in yes. their shared vernacular to be able to express ideas and all of that. So I I like how your family has these set ages where everyone meets the same characters and the same stories, and then you're able to, to communicate on those. That's very powerful.
1: My oldest is actually chomping at the bit because she knows in about a month that her younger sister is going to start Harry Potter. She's like, Dad, please <laughs> start reading it at least before I go to college so I can talk to her about this uh-huh. a little bit. So yeah. they're they're, they're really, she's excited about that. But it's just it has been a boon. It gives us a commonality of thoughts mm-hmm. and ideas. But it's also to help other people. Charlotte Mason Education has also helped us as a... As a uh, traveling family because it's a feast of ideas mm-hmm. not yeah, everybody yeah. is a book family but that doesn't mean that they don't have valuable things i think it was sir uh isaac watt no 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 he wrote men of iron can't remember his name right now howard
0: Pyle. It's- howard Pyle.
1: is it howard Pyle? pile mm-hmm. and there was another off- author but anyway the man i'm thinking of particularly he was homebound He was in his home, could never get out of his home, lived in his home. And so the only time he got out was when he was on the stage. And he would ride in between these cities, and this is the 1800s. And he would pay extra to sit up with the common people so he could talk to them. And on one particular day, he was talking. He tried to talk to all the people he can. He met this guy, and he was a hostler. He was like a leather worker, and he worked at saddles and other things. And he tried to talk about everything he could. And then basically, the guy just didn't have anything to talk about. He said, Well, what do you know? And he <laughs> said, Well, I know about bent leather. And he said, He talked for the next seven and a half hours. And he said, It was the most amazing conversation he <laughs> ever had about bent leather. And it's developed in this statement in our family. It's become this idea okay, go find their bent leather. And so yeah. when my kids go places, we tell them, Look, find their bent leather. And what's Mm -hmm. so cool about the Charlotte Mason education, because it's such a broad feast, and this isn't Mm -hmm. a podcast about Charlotte Mason, it just happens to be what God's allowed us to have, is it's given my kids so many ways to serve people and love people. So it goes Mm -hmm. someplace and they talk about, you name it. And it's made an opportunity to make friends and also to be friendly and to love the brethren. So that has been a really cool thing for us as we travel too.
0: Yeah find their bent leather. I like how I had to pay extra to sit up front (laughs) with the (laughs) commoners.
1: Some things are worth paying for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So your book is, does it have a release date?
1: Yeah. So I believe if I look at my calendar right here, let me look and see what it says. I believe, Lord willing... The 23rd to 27th, we will be receiving all our shipments, all our physical books from the printers, you know, with COVID and everything and print structures that has been delayed a bit, but we will have right. all the physical books. I am actually in the process now of signing the ones that will be signed. We have a way we're going to mm-hmm. do that and then they'll be shipped off i'm excited i can't wait to get a physical copy yeah um, i have friends in africa that we're going to give our books to too which is really exciting that was part of something that bandersnatch and their graciousness so worked in for us to be able to give books to friends that we have there so it looks like just about a week week and a half and then yeah. hey, we'll get to get started and everybody will get their physical books so
0: that's great so by the time this episode is aired John's book will be available from booksellers, and we highly recommend that you guys seek it out. Zayo's Tales by, you don't go by John on the cover,
1: J.A. Summers.
0: J.A. Summers. And that will be available for purchase from Vandersnatch Books, and I'm assuming it'll also probably be on Amazon. Yes, ma'am. Because most of Vandersnatch's books are there too. So that be- will be very exciting to have that there.
1: Yes. Well, we're looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you telling us about it and talking about home educating and your processes and how it's influenced you as an adult and being open about your dyslexia and encouraging other listeners and their kids who may also have that shared experience. Amanda, did you have any other questions that
2: well, now I really That's want right. to know when the second book is coming out. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, that is a very good question. And so, Lord willing, um, a lot of those things are there. Let me not give you any promises, yeah. but oh, I why will not? definitely we will <laughs> we will hope that it doesn't take as long as uh J. R. R. Tolkien's yeah. series. Yeah. So,
2: well, and hopefully so, it doesn't take as long as the first one. I don't want to wait seven years.
1: No, no. It, it definitely. That is one <laughs> nice thing about the writing process when you grow in it, it doesn't take as long. And I already have a publisher and an illustrator. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say this. My friend John Niner told me we better publish a second book because you said I worked through all this stuff and now I really know how to do it <laughs> and it you. would be so much easier to do book two. <laughs> so uh, you guys pray yeah. with us, the Lord's will will be done and that it will be good and that it will be. I'm praying a good addition and a a beautiful addition to the things that are already there.
0: Amanda and I talked about this so much last night when we were having a conversation that I think in my mind, we already talked about it here. But I just I wanted to let our listeners know who are not Christians that this book is not it's not going to proselytize to your kids. It's not going to preach at them. It has. It has biblical truths, it has world yeah. truths, life truths, all truths are God's truths. Yeah. But yeah. it is a book that would be a welcome addition to any Charlotte Mason home. Um, even the secular Charlotte Mason community would really enjoy this book. So, well,
1: As we said, truth probably. has nothing to be afraid of. And so right. truth has its own... Aroma and its own taste. Mm -hmm. And so I don't believe uh, that I have to make something. I I love what I do. I love being a missionary, Mm -hmm. but I believe truth is able to stand on its own two legs. And so if you are listening to this and you're not of my religious persuasion, you're not of my faith, you don't, do not be afraid that you will come and meet something that might be more than what you expect. I pray that you'll meet beauty that is so wonderful that it draws your soul in a very good way and gives you something to think about when we're done with the
0: story. All right. I'm going to close with one last quote from your book from, you know, the copy Amanda read of all my highlights (laughs) and she sent me back my highlights. And it says, though no one knew it at the time, something greater than fate was working to guide that finger to its resting place. Reader, mark it down. Many roads seemingly taken at random have a way of leading us to things that are quite providential. It is strange how life works out in the end. So we want to thank all of you for being here with us today. John's book will be available from Bandersnatch and Amazon. Zao's Tales by J.A.? Is that what he said?
1: J.A. Summer
0: Summer. and we appreciate your time and if you want to support what we're doing here on the podcast please click some stars on iTunes or leave a review and we hope that you have a great rest of your day remember the stories are truer than true go drink some water (laughs) bye (laughs)